Hello, Marvelites! You are listening to This Week in Marvel, episode number 508. I'm Ryan Panagos, a.k.a. Agent M. And I'm Lorraine Sink, uh, Chaotic Neutral. That, that's my alignment, my D&D alignment, Chaotic Neutral. I'm Buttery Clam uh, D&D alignment. Um, I hate that. <laughs> I knew great. you would! But the, you know what? That's not what we're here to talk about, Lorraine. Lorraine, what is this show all about? Well, we're talking about what's happening this week in Marvel, whether it's games, comics, movies, television, Disney+, Plus, whatever we're excited about, and only what we're excited about, everything else can bite it. So I love a birthday, you know this, but with the Marvel staff, I like to coordinate the birthday calendar because I think it's very important that people are appreciated on their birthdays, which is why we are wishing a very happy belated birthday to Benedict Cumberbatch, our own Doctor Strange, whose birthday was this past Monday. It was very cute. There were a bunch of his Marvel cohorts posting pictures of him from behind the scenes. I love all the folks in the MCU showing each other some love. Yeah. All right. Talking about the MCU, let's get into it because, oh boy, so much Marvel Studios Loki stuff, so much Marvel Studios stuff to talk about. Coming up on the show today, we have a butt ton of people who contributed to Marvel Studios Loki, a lot of behind the scenes talk that we'll get to later in the show. And of course, Marvel Studios Assembled the Making of Loki is now available to watch on Disney+. Plus. If you haven't checked it out, you're missing out on a wonderful documentary. I... I'm absolutely over the moon for all these assembled docs. They've done one for mm-hmm. each of the Marvel Studios original series on Disney Plus, and I freaking love them so much. Yeah, there's just so many details that you would never probably notice unless you really sat down and watched this assembled doc. So definitely go check it out. Also, you got to watch because Marvel Studios Loki is returning for a season two. So that just makes it, I think, extra, extra exciting. It should be really really awesome and of course you can watch all episodes of marvel studios loki now streaming on disney plus did you see a uh, director kate heron posted a picture of herself during the last bit of press that she had to do for the mm-hmm. series and she was wearing a they live t-shirt yeah 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 i did see it she always posts her press outfits which i thoroughly enjoy they live is one of my favorite movies and i was like man i love that t-shirt she's so cool <laughs> she is so cool. I-, I want her to be our best friend lorraine um, I fully want that too. Just like getting to chat with her about the series. I was like, do you want to be best, best friends? Should we be? I don't know. With the internet, we can all be best, best friends. That's true. You know what else is on the internet? Marvel must-haves. Every week we have posted the Marvel must-haves. Thanks to the team at Marvel.com for putting together a great list of all the cool stuff that people can get their hands on surrounding the Marvel Studios show. So we have the episode six merch available now. There's a TVA shirt, which is great. Loki hoodie, the alligator Loki socks, which come on, if those aren't already sold out, I don't even know. And tons more. Where can they go to find that stuff? Go over to Marvel.com slash must-haves. There's new stuff up all the time for all the Disney Plus series, which are so cool. Honestly, Alligator Loki just brings me an unprecedented amount of joy constantly. Oh, also, that reminds me, for anyone who noticed a certain hopping character Mm -hmm. in a certain series recently, Throg is going to be hopping into comic books. He's going to be in Thor number 18 coming this fall. Just announced, if you follow Donnie Cates, wonderful Marvel writer, on the internets, you've probably noticed that he is intensely defending the name of Throg (laughs) on the internet. And that is because he is going to be 
writing that issue of Thor number eight with artist Pascal Ferry. So definitely look out for it this fall. It is so joyful. Who doesn't love Throg? I got a little Throg up behind me on my shelf. It brings me true joy. The arc of Thor that Donnie completed recently, it was really gnarly. It was Donald Blake coming and just being nasty and evil, but he had a ton of Throg moments in there. They've been writing Throg with Lockjaw as like best friends and so and with Beta Ray Bill and Lockjaw's best friends. It's like, this is my favorite thing. We're making some of our favorite characters just like pal around buddies and hang out and they get into fights and it's great. I love comic books. They're so good. Comic book is so good. <laughs> All right, let's move on to Marvel Studios Black Widow because everybody is loving it. There is an awesome, awesome documentary E60 presents Moneymaker Behind the Black Widow, which is now streaming exclusively on ESPN+. It's about two of the best stunt women in Hollywood, Heidi and Renee Moneymaker. The Moneymaker sisters are going to take us through sort of the behind the scenes of what it's like to be a real life superhero as a stunt person. Heidi, you know, was really instrumental in crafting Black Widow with Scarlett Johansson and her sort of fighting styles. Renee worked a great deal with Brie Larson as her stunt double in Marvel Studios' Captain Marvel, amongst others. So it's a really cool, different look at their behind the scenes. And they're really skilled gymnasts. So Mm -hmm. also just like... So cool to see people who can drop somebody in real life. (laughs) Yeah. Another great thing you should also check out is the ESPN Daily podcast hosted by Pablo Torre, where they went behind the scenes with Heidi and Renee. We actually have a little clip with uh, Heidi right here. I think that from the beginning, the inception of this character and style in Iron Man 2, Scarlett and I both kind of walked in and our fight coordinator, John Eusebio, who's amazing, said, hey guys, we got this cool style for you. It's gonna be a little lucha libre mixed with acrobatics, mixed with, you know, straight martial arts. And we've got a really good idea for how we can make this character seem kind of like a spider, but also like, you know, an athlete and this and that. So we sort of walked into the beginning of the style, you know, in someone else's mind. And so she trained really hard. I, you know, had my two cents and input from the beginning for sure. But as the years went on and as we had different fight coordinators and as we moved on, she and I kind of worked together, you know, when it came down to what do we want, what do we want Black Widow to do in this scenario, in this movie? How do we want to make her the same, but have evolved? How do we want to up the ante and make you know, every single move a little bit bigger. It was kind of one of those things where we were able to sit down and work together and and decide, you know, what kind of flair we wanted to put, you know, onto our character was our character. You know, we both were involved. In fact, we call it Team Widow. It's her and I and other stunt doubles and fight coordinators and all sorts of people that make up this character. Um, But I think that I'm able to bring a very um, fight-oriented side of things. And she's, Scarlett comes in and brings the, you know, the real deep down emotion of it. And we kind of mold those together. One, two, three, four. Okay. What a bunch of badass ladies. Yeah. And uh, you can listen and follow ESPN Daily hosted by Pablo Torre wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, experience Marvel Studios Black Widow in theaters and on Disney Plus with premiere access for an additional fee. Right. Ding, dang, now. 
Another thing that's going to happen is a completion of the HasLab project for Galactus. Now, last week we mentioned to you that there would be a Fan First Friday for Hasbro at Hasbro Pulse on their social pages and their YouTube. And that was the big announcement of Marvel Legends Galactus. And I was fortunate enough to be a part of the live stream there and, you know, be a part of announcing it alongside Jesse Falcon, friend of the show, and buddies Dan and Dwight over from Hasbro. And Lorraine, did you look at this big boy? Yeah, it's 32 inches tall, which I'm fairly certain is taller than Catherine Grace. About the same height as my toddler. It's so wonderful, though, because I just think of the display that will be this 32-inch figure next to all of your regular-sized, like, Marvel Legends figures. I don't know where to put it. I'm like, I have two big bookcases in my office. It's too large to sit on any of those bookcases. It's got to be like a display piece. It's got to be on your desk or something flat because you need three feet of room above it. 32 inches tall. 300 plus pieces, over 70 points of articulation, 20 points of articulation in each hand. It has LEDs in the head and the chest. It has swappable faceplates, so you can have like different expressions. One of them is even like a skeleton face, like a skull. So that's really cool. On top of that, if you're in the US and you are a Marvel insider, you get 70,000 points per purchase. So the limit to two code redemptions per account. And you also get three digital comics, the issues of the original Galactus trilogy, Fantastic Four 48 through 50 by Stanley and Jack Kirby. And you can read those in the Marvel Comics app. There's other tiers. So, you know, it's, this is a HasLab project, which means it will get funded if enough people back it, enough people want to buy it. Mm-hmm. So make sure you get in there. I know what the like tiers are. So if they reach X number of people who want to buy it, They'll add extra things. So they've said that there will be six inch figure, you know, so if you get it to a certain point, you get a six inch Marvel legend and the six inch Marvel legend goes up partially to his like calf of Galactus. Uh, (laughs) And so it's going to be really cool. There's, there's a lot of great stuff that could come out of this. Now the HasLab project, you can check it out at HasbroPulse.com and it runs through August 30th. So Hopefully it all works out. And if it all gets successfully back, the project will begin shipping next year. So back it now and just like, let it happen. And then fall 2022, you'll get the greatest surprise of all. Basically a child size Galactus. Like you can, (laughs) you can put it in a stroller. It can be your baby. It could be your baby. You could put it in your front of your house, like a scarecrow. You can. Oh, hungry baby. Yeah. Hungry baby, get me a planet. <laughs> we have a lot of ideas about how we're going to utilize our Galactuses. I've already backed <laughs> the project, so you should too. Go to HasroPulse.com and you can check it out. Also coming up in the near-ish future is Marvel's Voices Community, Communidades number one. This is going to be an awesome collection of wonderful Latinx heroes and creators from across the Marvel Universe in Marvel's Voices style which will be really awesome. There are going to be some great characters, Spider-Man, White Tiger, Ghost Rider, and a bunch more characters, as well as fan favorite creators. They're going to introduce a new hero in the book. Look, as as someone who is Latinx, I'm very excited for this. Also, Carla Pacheco's doing a story in it, and she's the best. And I think they should give every comic book to her, because she'll blow up everything. 
moving along. Happy Halloween, what? Ryan. No, wait. Yes, actually, yes. Get me the hell out of summer. Burn the summer <laughs> down. I hate the heat. I, I want to rip my skin off at all times. Okay, that's that is Halloween appropriate, but that's that's not <laughs> what this is about. There's going to be a Marvel Halloween comic book extravaganza. Yeah. October 27th, you all can visit your local participating comic book shop. They are going to have a retailer event, giving fans a chance to pick up copies of best-line comics. We have Miles Morales Spider-Man number one, Hawkeye number one, Star Wars, The High Republic number one, and Daredevil 28. So a bunch of great series to get into, a really fun thing to do for Halloween, especially if you're looking for something that is not maybe going house to house. I love Halloween, Ryan. I can't wait. If you told me I could put up my fall decor right now, I would. You can. You bought a house. You could do whatever the hell you want. All right, let's move on to Marvel's Wastelanders. Old Man Star-Lord getting us some audio chit-chat right now because Chapter 9 is out this week. Craven's Hunt is going on, and you can check it out on SiriusXM or wherever you get your podcasts because Star-Lord is now in Craven's custody. Rocket has become the ultimate prey, and they get a little help from an old friend. You know what? In fact, why don't you guys just take a listen right now? I'm Brandon Best, and this is Deer on a Spear. On this very special occasion, our drones are reporting to us live from the front lines. Peter Quill, you washed-up loser. Welcome to Deer on a Spear. Gee, thanks! Now, you're minutes away from certain death. How does it feel to know that after ruining so many lives and causing so much damage in our beloved community, you're going to get your lungs ripped out of your throat? Listen to Marvel's Wastelanders, Old Man Starlord on SiriusXM or wherever you get your podcast. Do it. All right, Ryan, we got a bucket full of interviews to throw these fish to the seals. Is that how it works? I yep, don't know. That is 100% how it works, Lorraine. Uh, we are loaded up with Marvel Studios Loki behind the scenes action this week. Our first interview is with Marvel Studios Loki production designer Kazra Farahani. Lorraine, you did this one. Yeah, I think the thing that blows my mind the most about this series is how much of it was real. You know, I think we see in a lot of big films when we have these fantastical locations that they're often, you know, really built out with VFX and CGI. And there's a shocking amount of stuff that was hand built for this series, like whole towns. And so there's some really interesting insight to the process and some of the cool stuff that they got to create for the series. So enjoy. Hello, Kazra. Welcome to This Week in Marvel. So what is your Marvel origin story? What was the first way that you encountered the Marvel universe? Well, you know, I mean, I think like everybody, you grow up and, you know, Spider-Man is all <laughs> over the place. Uh, I remember the cartoon, the old cartoon was a, oh, yeah. a great intro song, was like probably my first experience. And then Thor, my brother was into Thor. My, I have an older brother who's like 10 years older than me. 
and he was really into Thor and I found out about Thor through him and that was very interesting. But then I sort of, me and Marvel parted ways for part of my later adolescence and college life and then I guess I didn't reunite until Thor, uh, the movie was my first Marvel project that I worked on. I was an art director on that film working for production designer Bo Welch, who's um, sort of a mentor of mine, brilliant guy. So speaking of production design, what does a production designer do for anyone who's not up on their behind the scenes? <laughs> yeah, sure. You know, I think production designers, they do two major parts to the process. Like the first and maybe the most important part is the production designer works with the script and with the director to basically create the first conceptual imagery of what's written down in the script. You know, and, and production designer has, in the art department, we have very talented illustrators and set designers and artisans. And so using that team, you create the first pass of imagery that is a distillation of what's in the scripts for all the department heads and all the different creative collaborators to respond to and to mm -hmm. provoke discussion. And in that process, you iterate the design and what's scripted and you figure out basically what is the creative roadmap? What are we building in the end? Which brings me to the second part of the process, which is you know making a plan to build and build, whether it's physically building sets or whether it's making a plan for what's going to be the visual effects portion of this, designing that and passing those designs off to visual effects will then build it and planning out how it integrates with the practical photography. So it's a big imagination job and this is an imaginative show. You know, you're in different places all over time and different places in the world and potentially other worlds. Where do you start to do your research? And were there any particular comics or artists that inspired you as you were building these different places? Oh, so many. If you hit the nail on the head, where you start is research. Um, mm -hmm. So we had a researcher on a um, very smart woman named Lauren Baker. And we just exhaustive research polls on mid-century modern architecture, all the different versions of mid-century modern architecture. We pulled great influence from like the brutalism that was built in the mid-century in, in England, but also we were looking at the like heavily Soviet influenced mid-century modernism that you saw in Eastern Europe. And also the warm whimsical version of mid-century modernism we had in America and also the kind of fantasy mid-century modernism they had in Brazil. All of these different elements, which we discovered in research ended up informing what becomes the TVA. You know, the, the TVA has very much has the like, this imposing scale and stoicism of mm -hmm. brutalism and Eastern European modernism, but it's skinned in the warmth and whimsy of American mid-century modernism. Mm -hmm. So arriving at these precise influences very much begins in the research phase. In terms of the comics, you know, there's, a, I would say more than us, the, the writers and the creator use the comics in distilling from the comics, the narrative parts that they're bringing to the show. And so we have a roadmap already of what comics are relevant to this. And we look at those comics and they, they become, you know, whether it's looking at Lamentis One in the comics or what the TVA looks like in the comics, or of course, even Asgard or any of these other places that we went to, you start there, but the goal is always on, on a Marvel project to help to build out the MCU, to expand it, to make the world bigger. 
Yeah, well, I mean, even the worlds within worlds are so big. You, the TVA is huge, right? And there's so many different places at the TVA that have different functions. Yeah. What was your favorite set from the TVA to work on and create? I really can't. It's hard to say. I mean, you like, can't choose your darlings. <laughs> no, I love them all. You know, like uh, I love the receiving set, which is this big circular room, which mm-hmm. you walk into, and there's this orange bowl that's very much inspired by Arrow Saarinen. It's a friendly room, it's warm, and there's a big orange bowl, but then you look and you realize you can't tell which way is which. It looks exactly the same uh, in every direction. It's completely disorienting. And then, you know, when you're in the processing chambers, these crazy metal rooms where your Loki's clothes are burned off and, or the clerk and his cat, they spend their, the whole of eternity in there. Like, that's so fun. And, and then like, I don't know, maybe in some ways the, DMV inspired queue where they talked to Ms. Minutes with this like kind of massive matrix of eyeballs on a super low ceiling. Like we dropped that ceiling to seven foot six, which is about, you know, in most people's apartments, their ceilings are a little higher than that. So we crushed it down to make it feel all the more imposing. But even with all of those, I love all those, but I think probably the time theater is my favorite. You know, that scale, that massive, imposing, concrete, grid of lights in the ceiling that create these big shafts and squares prison-like quality contrasted with these big bright orange doors that again give you that cognitive dissonance about whether this is a friendly space or as Loki describes it this is a killing me kind of room you know so that was the thing with the TVs always to make it in part impossible to have a clear idea on how to feel about any of it. Uh, and then, yeah, of course, chrono monitoring was a joy to build. So, yeah, sorry, I, I did wasn't able to do a favorite. I, I really liked them all. Well, let's talk about one that you, you know, I know a lot of the TVA was fairly built, but the Expanse obviously is yeah. very not built. Um, yeah. Yeah. What What is it like for you to have the freedom of the paintbrush instead of maybe the hammer? You know, it was awesome. I mean, it's a world I'm used to. Before I was a production designer and before I was an art director, I was a concept artist for a long time. And I actually did concept art on a couple of Marvel films too. So thinking in that world is natural to me, but I was working a long time with my illustrator, Josh Veers, who's so brilliant, worked on so many Marvel projects himself, on figuring out what this expanse is because it's, it's tricky. It's a TVA exists outside of a physical world. There's no weather. There's not even necessarily gravity as we understand it. There's no atmosphere. So the expanse needed to pay homage to the floating desks of the TVA that you see in the source material, but it also needed to feel even bigger, like an infinite bureaucracy. There aren't any things that are true interiors or true exteriors because there's no weather. So there's no reason to make that distinction. So there's walkways that are going in and out of rooms and out onto plazas that are it looks and feels like a plaza, but it might be carpeted the way an interior would be. So all this is micro detail that most viewers can't see in that expanse, but these are the sort of things that we think about sort of like micro narratives that we build for ourselves to be able to envision these places in detail. You know, a a lot of folks who have attended Dragon Con noticed a very notable elevator in the expanse. Uh (laughs) And um, I wonder, what is it like for you to incorporate sort of when you're using real locations like that in such a, a VFX world? 
Sure. Yeah, it's tricky because all the TVA locations were built sets, uh, except for the archives, which was the one location that we use. And like that building designed by John Portman is so beautiful. And we were shooting in Atlanta. It seemed a mistake not to take advantage of it, especially because the archive, while it needed to feel expansive and huge, it didn't have a high page count. So you can't necessarily justify building a massive set for it. So when we scouted it, we knew right away it was going to mesh perfectly with the big physical sets that we were building in terms of look. And seeing that atrium, it occurred to me, it was a great opportunity to basically do this massive, super scaled timekeeper statues mm-hmm. that are you know larger than, larger than the Statue of Liberty even, doing them in an interior, which is so TVA to like, bring this exterior scale into an interior environment. And so, yeah, no, that was that was great. Uh, there was a lot that that location had to offer us. And it was just about planning out how to augment it in post in terms of the design to make it fit into our world. Well, I mean, it's really wild how, how many worlds you brought to life. And I was really impressed getting to see some behind the scenes about Lamentis and Sheru. How much of those two sets and of that sort of apocalyptic timeline, how much of that was built sets? We built all of Sheru, actually. Uh, it was an entirely built set up to 16 feet. So for most of the coverage, it's, it's all in camera. It, it, when they tilt up to look at this planet and they've tilted up to look at the arc uh, their set extension beyond that 16 feet but because we were trying to shoot this in a combination of handheld steady cam and as a virtual oneer it really needed to be that most of the photography was down on the ground was in camera so that became a very involved collaboration of choreography between Monique our stunt coordinator, Autumn, our DP, Kate, of course, our director, our visual effects team, our special effects team, figuring out exactly how much set we need, what are these little narrow alleys that they run down, where are we burying the cuts, where are the air mortars and explosions happening to, to thwart and redirect the character's path, uh, when do we look up at the sky, And what do we see there? And what's, you know, where are the buildings collapsing down on them? That was all elaborately planned in advance. And, you know, starting from paper model at the beginning to the point where we had multiple tech scouts during the construction of the set so that we could fine tune the precise shape and placement of certain things to facilitate getting that shot. I mean, there, there's so much work that goes into it. And then on top of that, the storytelling of just what Sheru looks like feels like a very complete world. I was very jealous seeing set pictures. I was like, I want to walk through there. I feel like it's like the Disney experience, you know, where you, you get inserted into the world kind of moment. What was your idea for what Sheru was for a society and how that played out visually? So, you know, basically what we were building was, a, was an alien world which is challenging in the MCU, which has successfully designed so many beautiful and distinct alien worlds. They were trying to find something unique, and yet it still needed to evoke, for the audiences, it needed to evoke this industrial mining archetype. They needed to be able to know what the function of the place is. So in terms of Sheru itself, we wanted to have a really gritty, working-class, industrial quality, and yet feel alien. So... In terms of the architecture, we imagined that they wouldn't build anything fancy. They wouldn't pre-build and 
and ship things here. Most of that stuff would probably be 3D printed in place. So the form language of the architecture, if you look at it, there's a kind of a unity to it. There's a lot of stepped forms, like a ziggurat stepped forms, as if they were like, they set up a scaffolding armature of 3D printing and then printed some sort of a composite, like a weird alien version of concrete into these stepped forms. And then to push it one degree further than that, we came up with this idea of using blacklight paint, which is very different than what everyone remembers from high school. There's a lot of different <laughs> colors of blacklight paint now. You can kind of get the whole world, but like every building on top of having a really weird three-dimensional surface had a super elaborate striped pattern. And the stripes were made of alternating blacklight reactive paint and non-blacklight reactive paint. So the effect when he turned on the blacklight was the blacklight parts seemed to almost to float like holograms. So like it was an in-camera effect that almost seemed like CG or, or 2D mm -hmm. cartoon or something. And I think it ended up giving us a pretty unique result at the end. And Kevin Feige, we were lucky that he did set visits when we were shooting Cheru those nights. And it was a high praise that he thought it was something distinct in the MCU. And it means a lot coming from him who's run so many of these different worlds. Now, we finally move on to the void. And I have to say, I think that everybody is obsessed with the Lokis, the many Lokis, the layer of Lokis, as I call it. I have to know. Yes. Was it always intended to be in some sort of bowling alley? I need to know where that came from. No, it wasn't intended to be in some sort of bowling alley. That was one place in the script where we had a lot of rope. The script just described it as a temple. Mm. It didn't say much about it. So we had a lot of runway there and it was awesome to get so much freedom to explore different ideas. But ultimately, you know, what I was thinking about with the bowling alley is that like the void is essentially a dumping ground of aberrant realities that get deleted from time. And they dropped into this place and Elioth devours whatever energy there is. And then it, the husk remains and then more things drop on top of it. So over time, you have this accumulation, this sort of strata of deleted realities. And so we wanted to show that in order to stay safe on Elioth, they, they went in this subterranean place. And what I pitched was they found this bowling alley. And I liked the idea of the bowling alley because I thought we could shatter the, the floor surface, basically, and create a lower area where the throne would be and use the lane lines as a visual kind of vector that's drawing you to the throne. Early on, I thought it would be funny that the throne would be salvaged from like a mall Santa from getting to the reality. And that there's these weird alien vines going through it from like whatever the reality was that was deleted right next to the bowling alley that's like invading this. And some of the stuff, you know, like the bowling alley, we had layers of set dressing in there if you look, like there were some portraits of like Bowler of the Month or whatever. And if you look at them, they weren't quite human, these portraits. Now, some of this stuff, it's deep background. You don't, you don't get to see it in the final edit, some of it. But these are, again, these are the sort of like micro narratives that we create in the art department to help us arrive at very specific lived in environments. I want to know where every tiny detail and like Easter egg moment exists, but I, I have to let you go, unfortunately. So we're just going to we're going to go back and we're going to look for those portraits on slow-mo. <laughs> There's a lot of good Easter eggs in that whole episode. Awesome. Thank you so much, Gazra. Bye-bye. 
All right. We have another interview with costume designer Christine Wada talking about costumes. Yeah. And I, I got to say, if you guys have not finished the series, this is going to have some big spoilers for the final episode. So go make sure that you've watched all episodes of Marvel Studios Loki now on Disney Plus and then come back and listen to this interview because she has some really cool stuff to say about a certain character at the end. Take a listen. I'm speaking with the incomparable Christine Wada, costume designer of Marvel Studios, Loki. Hi, Christine. Hello. It's so lovely to be speaking with you. Um, what is your Marvel origin story? What was your first contact with the superheroes and fantasticalness of the Marvel Universe? Well, digging deep back into history, <laughs> um, actually, one of the last jobs that I was an assistant on was Iron Man 2 with Mary Sofries. Oh, wow. I trained under Mary Zofries, and she had asked me to do the second unit for Iron Man 2 in Monaco. Thank you very much. No problem. <laughs> sure. And um, and so that was the first time I've ever dealt with Marvel and uh, got to do the deep, fun dive. And and then, then there's Loki. And now there's Loki. Were you ever, you know, connected to comics or cartoons of, with the Marvel characters growing up? I was definitely connected with cartoons and I had for sure read some Marvel comics as a kid. I did definitely do some Fantastic Four stuff and whatever as a, as a kid. Came into play, didn't it? Um, <laughs> just, just a little bit. Now, the show is just, it's so phenomenal. And I'm sure it must be like just a huge imagination exercise because you get to be in so many sort of different looking and sometimes fantastical seeming worlds. What was your, you know, initial ideation process when you started working on this with the director, Kate Heron, and, and beyond with the other teams? What was sort of your overall aesthetic for this series? Two things. First, in my interview with Kate, it was really interesting how we had the same references. Like um, oh. some of the references I brought were actually the same and same with the production designer. So I think that it was just a really kind of perfect match. And I think it really paid off because we all really, without knowing each other, had sort of the same references. And then the second half of that is just that when I first read the scripts in the Mad Max meets Mad Men line by Michael Cauldron, it was really just such a perfect launching point. It was just enough words to really spark my imagination and give me a home base, right? To then go off and design a world. But it gave, and it gave Kazra and I sort of this similar language, right? So we allowed us to have a language immediately, a visual language, which I think really helped the success of the show. I really do. I would imagine so. You know, and there's so many kind of cool, wonderful ways that you break the mold in this show. I think one of the initially exciting ones is we get to see Loki in something other than his Loki gear. How did you decide on what that different look was going to be and what it was, you know, saying about him emotionally and the journey he's going on? The first thing when you read the script is you just want to, because you realize that this is about to become an emotional journey for Tom's character and sort of a, a weighing of 
the many sides of him. So you really want to strip him of his armor is the first thing that you think of, you know, when you read the, read the material. So it's just putting him in a vulnerable position costume wise, and then allowing him to then still make cool Loki out of anything, which I think is kind of fantastic. So it's like, you, you know, you can give Tom a prison uniform or you can (laughs) give him a, you know, a variant jacket and Loki will inevitably make it iconically Loki, you know, and make it cool. Right. So, (laughs) and and it, you know, I think it also just sort of speaks to the inward journey that, that his character was having, learning how to work with what you have, which I think is kind of part of the story as well. Right. That's kind of a a great segue to Sylvie because, you know, she's kind of the ultimate character that has to work with what she has as this, you know, time traveler bandit type character. What was your sort of overall vision for what you wanted to incorporate into her look and what it said about her? Well, the beginning, it's, I thought it was just really important that the costume didn't give away anything about her. Mm -hmm. Right. And that she was just a shadow and a genderless shadow. And then I thought, it would just be even more interesting that she gets rid of that genderless poncho and continues to be somewhat androgynous, you know, Mm -hmm. instead of being sort of a gender reveal, it just becomes a character reveal. So with her costume, it was just about making her look somewhat, you know, scavenged, a little battle worn, and also sort of connect her with the Loki character a little bit with the color palette. You know, there are some little signature things like the little gold details on her costume and little nods to the Loki character. Yeah, just letting her sort of evolve, but kind of stay in warrior mode the whole time, you know? Yeah, I mean, she definitely looks like a total badass. I love all of her sort of armor detail. It's so cool. And another really cool detail, which I'm sure that everyone has mentioned to you by now, but I think it's been really wonderful, you know, especially for parents and and women in the media to see Sofia DiMartino, you know, posted this wonderful picture showing how you had built the costume for her so she could keep breastfeeding through production. Can you tell me a little bit about, you know, what that conversation was like and, and what the process was for incorporating that? Sure. So when I went to fit her initially, she was like a brand new, brand new mama. You know, it was a lot. She had just gotten the role and a huge role. And she was going to have to come to America for months and months and months. And the courageous Sophia, you just want to make her, you know, you want to make people as successful as they can be and allow them to just elevate their craft. I mean, and and that goes for everybody, you know, on the project. So when I fit her, I quickly learned that like this is something she's going to need to be successful and to not have to worry about it or to feel, you know, like you're holding up camera or this or that, like just making like an all good design function. Like function is a huge part of good design. Even if it's just about comfortable shoes, that's also sometimes really important in good design because who wants to see somebody who isn't natural and feeling comfortable in what they're wearing, right? You want to like, let them be free to do their job and also to be a great mom, (laughs) a successful mom. 
I've sort of been telling friends, it's like, I don't just see it for film. I see it for life. You want to see everybody be successful in this life, or that's what you would wish for is that everybody is successful. Hats off to you and and the entire team, because I just, it's a beautiful thing to see. It's a wonderful thing to see, especially in, you know, (laughs) we have some costumes that are definitely hard for folks to wear at times. So I just think it's really, really incredible to see. And there, I mean, gosh, there are just so many, well, first of all, Lokis, there's so many Lokis, (laughs) you know, of, of the Classic Loki, our boastful Loki, our kid Loki, our president Loki, a band of Lokis. How did you go about sort of sourcing the ideas for how you wanted those to look and the sort of feel of of each one of those? Well, for the classic Loki and Mm -hmm. kid Loki, a lot of those are very specific to the comic books. Mm -hmm. And then the band, you know, I started with just sort of a deep dive into history and like Mm -hmm. little moments in time that Loki could have been caught in and then hobbled and scavenged together a cool outfit from as Loki would do. So really started the research process with like history and the world, right? Mm -hmm. Trying to just almost as if you took a screen grab of a moment and then just sort of built from there and turned it into Loki and and really easy to do with the color palette, right? Like, thank God there's that color palette to sort of always remind us, or there's those iconic Loki things like a horn, a weapon, or whatever. There are certain things that are so iconically a cape, you know, the gold, little bit of gold. So which, which of the Lokis from the band of Lokis was your favorite? Oh, wow. You know what's sad is that you don't get to see the bicycle helmet guy enough, I don't think. <laughs> yeah, he's phenomenal. The, the, you know, right? the handlebars. I mm-hmm. I really love that. And when, when we were illustrating that, we had so many fun names for all those different Lokis. It's really fun. I would like to take a look at the list. Um, <laughs> I just want to know. I want to know what where they exist, and what their names are. They're just so much fun. You know, this show is just one of those shows where the more you look, the more you watch it, the more you get from it. The more little fun details you can find hidden in there everywhere. So much specificity, and you know, a world that's sort of in and of itself is just so unique is the TVA. And it's kind of an interesting job you had working with the TVA because you also had to sort of create, you know, the whole structure of the TVA with a visual language of costumes. How did you sort of decide on, you know, what ranks looked like and and the different levels that people were? I really come from a design sort of aesthetic that I need everything to feel like it has a purpose. So I really used somewhat of like a police station Mm -hmm. and sort of the rankings just to sort of back into a little bit. You know, I guess the best way to put it is that that the TVA and this series was just sort of, you know, rethinking the recognizable, right? So Mm -hmm. like I said, I think good design always kind of comes from purpose, right? So Mm -hmm. you can definitely see that it's like you would go into the police precinct and all the different people you'd see, you'd see office people, you'd see lieutenants, and then you'd see, you know, the bomb squad and you'd Mm -hmm. see the SWAT team and you'd see secretaries, right? So it kind of, I kind of just broke that costume down into that ranking, right? Yeah, it's such a a wild world. And then we come to the end of the world and we meet He Who Remains. Uh, What was your inspiration for what he would wear in his own timeline? 
definitely eccentric in a new way of eccentric in that he, you know, almost barefoot. Like if he could have been barefoot, we would have <laughs> almost done barefoot. And just that like you're so, somebody who's so kind of eccentrically comfortable in their own skin, they could wear, you know, a kimono and just be like, look like they were dressed for a business meeting, right? That they could mm-hmm. go whatever they want because they rule the world. And, you know, I gave Jonathan, I found this vintage like 1930s silk robe. And, you know, it was also the height of COVID. So mm-hmm. he had to do everything remotely. So I sent him that robe and some slipper shoes to just sort of get comfortable with. And I have to tell you, best part of this job is just working with so many incredibly seasoned and talented actors who are so aware of their own bodies and like are just in their own skin so much that like he just obviously did his homework and wore it. And so by the time we started shooting, I I built this silk robe based on that. And I mean, I've never, Lorraine, I've never seen anybody who just just became comfortable in it. Like he just made it feel natural. And it's a woman's silk gown and he really owned it and he made it feel powerful. And it's incredible to me. I just, and the, the women who made it, you know, I made them come to set one day when he was working on it. And I mean, really they cried. It was like really that because he just really took their work and elevated it to this incredible. Yeah really was magical, I I thought. Well, I certainly don't think we can top that. Thank you so much for speaking with me. Congrats on the show. It's absolutely phenomenal. I'll be looking out for you in the timeline. (laughs) Thank you, Lorraine. Big thank you to Christine for joining us on the show. Our third and final interview for this week is with Marvel Studios Loki composer Natalie Holt. I got to chat with Natalie about the music and we get into some spoilers about the end of the season. So um, make sure, like Lorraine said, you have watched all of Marvel Studios Loki available now on Disney Plus and then listen to this interview with Natalie Holt. So my wife, she has a PhD in ethnomusicology, and so she's like super music nerd. And when I said I was chatting with you, she was so like her eyes lit up. She was so excited in her circles of musicology, like super nerdy PhD academic music. They love your work on Marvel Studios Loki. (laughs) It's neat to see how a series like this and your work can just, you know, transcend and move through different circles. It's really, really cool. Mm, well, it's very flattering to hear. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, at that out of the way, I would love to know, what is your Marvel origin story? How did you first get, you know, sort of acquainted with the characters? Were you a fan? What was it for you that first connected you to Marvel? My partner a few years ago, is he's a writer, and he was interested in doing sort of like a British series that was based around superheroes. And so he was like doing lots of research. And this is when, this is like 10 years ago, actually, how time flies. But anyway, so yeah, he was doing lots of research into superhero movies. And to be honest, like I was a huge Star Wars fan as a kid, but I hadn't moved into the Marvel world at that point. I was just like all about the Star Wars. And so, yeah, he started watching Marvel movies in, in like multiple times to just kind of understand the nuances of superheroes and how the structure worked and everything. And I was with him and I just, yeah, got drawn in and just 
to be honest, Thor, that end of the Marvel Universe was up there, my favourite kind of layer of it. So I love Loki. And, you know, when I found out that that was what I was in the runnings for with this unidentified pitch that I sent my showreel in for, <laughs> it was just like a Marvel project that's epic and spacey um yeah when that came back as being Loki I totally lost my shit. I was just so excited <laughs> so you had to send in a pitch of just like a general like ideas and themes about your no, music for a show um, yeah like a showreel is just stuff that you've done before maybe it's been used or not used but yeah just your kind of back catalog that might be relevant to people to listen to to see if you're up their alley up their alley <laughs> <laughs> yeah well clearly the theme in particular what's your inspiration for that because especially if you're working closely with kate and, and the team at marvel studios are they aside from saying hey we would love this instrument what else is sort of like in the background as you're starting to put this together so when i landed the job from the pitch kate had to go back to film because they'd obviously been shut down in the middle of filming from covid so i got the job we had lots of creative chats and then she was like, I'm going to be a bit sort of preoccupied <laughs> with filming, you know, like giant sequences that happen later on. And so I just had about a month to kind of find those themes for the other characters. And I hadn't seen that much. I'd only seen like a few sequences. I kind of came up with this suite, which had the TVA theme, Mobius's theme, the variant theme. Like there's a couple of versions of that variant theme and B-15 her kind of action theme as well. So that was all in the suite. And to be honest, like that suite has totally stayed, was like the Bible for writing the show and it's all in there. And once I'd had that theme, I kind of, I sent all those themes off to the top brass and it was approved like that kind of, those, I used all the Norwegian folk instruments in there and like went to town with like lots more crazy layers of synths and theremins and I did that. They were orchestral samples as well. And yeah, they approved it. And then that was it. <laughs> <laughs> it's neat, especially hearing all the different instruments and stuff. I, I am not a musician myself, but my wife, she's a musician. I listen to a lot of varied music, a, a lot of especially these days, a lot of synthy stuff, but like, you know, sort of darker synth stuff. So getting more of an education in that type of synthy music is a lot of fun and hearing it in our shows is rad, is really cool. Are there other instruments that you were excited to put in there or other sounds that you're like, I'm going to try this and see, see what happens? Well, yeah, I guess that Kate wasn't totally sure about the Norwegian folk instruments. She thought that might be a bit kind of obvious. I kind of recorded demos with a nickel harper and a hard anger fiddle but I kind of again I never just use things straight up I'll always mess them around a bit or treat the sound or like run it through like a space echo or something so so then when she heard those um Norwegian instruments connected to Loki's past and his feelings for his mother and his feelings for Sylvie or and well Sylvie's character theme is is based in those Norwegian folk instruments as well but it's like a very dark version of it because she's such a kind of dark character with with how she's kind of evolved in living as a child like growing up living in apocalypses it's like you know murdering people she had to have quite a dark theme so yeah and Kate went for those instruments and they felt they feel like they've got the emotional side of Loki's character 
Were you prepared for the fandom? It's everywhere. I know, like, I have a friend who she's super into. She's like, I need to know the tie that Loki has when he has the vote sticker on because I need to cosplay that in October. And then I see, you know, in, for, for you, like, fans doing their own tribute versions and, and taking, you know, what you've helped create for the show. Were you ready for all that? I didn't know. I was not. <laughs> I, I just... I don't know. I didn't know. I'm always like such a, I kind of can't, oh, I don't know. Yeah. I couldn't imagine how it was going to be like letting go of it out into the world. I I just, yeah, I couldn't have imagined. I, I just hoped people would like it and they wouldn't be outraged by how weird it was. <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, I hope that, you know, the fans aren't horrified by this, but um, yeah, every it's, they seem to have, people seem to be really embracing it. And I've had so many lovely messages like on social media from people that it's just like I could get a very big head and become like <laughs> just I don't know lounge around reading all my all, all nice messages <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I should do that <laughs> but there was like what I saw that we we the team and I we listened to was like a low-key version, oh, of, version yeah and I was like that, that was so cool it was amazing. That's got to be so much fun for you to to like just to see those on top of, you know, the, the positive messages, but like actually seeing someone take it and do extra things with it. Yeah, no, it's super cool. Like I, I'm, I totally just that somebody's taken the time and the, the theme has grabbed them so much to do that. It's just, it's very flattering for sure. Yeah. When you're talking with Kate and other folks on the show, were there any discussions about tailoring the music a little bit towards like the locations or the visual cues of the show? You, you mentioned some of the, the Norwegian instruments, but obviously there are some far out places that we go in the show. Were there any discussions of like, hey, this is what the look of this scene is going to be? Even if you hadn't seen it yet, this is what we're trying to get visually. Was there any discussion about pairing that with the music? Yeah. As I mentioned, when I got the job and then Kate had to go away to film and she was filming some of episode six at that point she was like I think that this performance that I'm getting here <laughs> don't spoiler alert from this certain character who crops up at the end she was sort of saying I think you should see this because I think it's going to help you to get into the meat and veg of what this whole thing is leading towards so I was sent the dailies from episode six and then I came up with the final basically the TVA is leading to it's actually the character theme for the end of episode six. And that's what that you're getting like the major spoiler here. But the TBA theme is actually he who remains theme mm -hmm. because they because he's in charge of it all. So that's gonna be the theme for this character that emerges at the end of Loki. So I always knew that right from the beginning. I was like, everyone's gonna think that this is the TBA theme, but actually it's his theme. I love that. Uh, and you meant you we keep saying you keep saying weird you know talking about the fans think it's weird or but like i talked to kate early on and i and she was like oh it's gonna get weirder i think that we you know we had talked after i only seen episode like two episodes and i was like weird is great we love weird weird is you know it's like it's perfect and especially you're a star wars fan when star wars gets into weird that's good stuff i love weird star wars i love weird sci-fi that's got to be a lot of fun to start to play with totally i mean i Oh my gosh, The Mandalorian. I'm such a big fan of, you know, I was just thinking when I knew about The Mandalorian, I was like, how could John Williams not be doing it? Like, what do you do when you've got that huge musical legacy of John Williams? Like, you have to just 
go somewhere completely different. And I think that um, Ludwig totally nailed that world and, and that kind of emptiness of space and the kind of aloneness of the character. He just, that recorder thing is, it, when I hear it, I'm just, I get chills. I think it's so genius. <laughs> I love that soundtrack. So yeah, for me, episode six was the most fun to write because I felt like I'd got into, I'd got so into it by that point that it just, I wrote episode six so fast. I was like, this is completely atonal, bonkers. You know, the most out there stuff I've written, I think, but I play, it just seemed to work and I played it to Kate and Kevin Wright and they, they, they loved it. So that was great to be able to take episode six where we took it was just a joy musically and to take all those themes and sort of break them up and make like distort them and make them completely atonal you know I just yeah it was it was so fun it just that's like a another theme of the show for me and just talking with everybody it's fun y'all seem to like having a great time making the series (laughs) all right so if there was a, a variant of Natalie who didn't go down the musical path and so she was she had so gotten, you know, strayed from the sacred timeline. What do you think she would be doing? Where would her path have been? She'd be an archaeologist. <laughs> <laughs> that was what I always wanted to do. I love history. And it was like archaeology or history or music. Yeah. So if you had the ability, like the TVA's ability to travel time and space, would you go like check out some dinosaurs or you just want to do the digging part of it just discovering things and and like picking up this old thing and working out what it used to do and how people used to use it and like I went to Pompeii and I was just blown away by it even though it's just the history like how we used to live and how we evolve I find really fascinating and you know like the history of of what we used to listen to and how instruments would have sounded and the how music develops I'm fascinated by it but I just feel like I wish rather than having a, an alternate version, because then that, I wouldn't get to do it myself. I just rather like be able to be like live for a thousand years and just have multiple careers. <laughs> that would be better. Sure. Be yeah. A long time. Yeah. Be able to like actually go and have that archaeology kind of career. Is, is there a specific time and place you would go to? Like if you had that ability, if you did have the TVAs, you know, you just boop, 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 open up a door. Where's the first place you go? Oh, I think it would be like the Valley of the Kings before it had been kind of ransacked. Any other Marvel character, now that you've seen more of the Marvel Universe over time, you've been a part of a major aspect of the Marvel Universe with Marvel Studios Loki. Are there any other characters you'd love to create a a theme for or um, sort of build some music around? The character that the TVA theme is for, I'd love to carry on with that character (laughs) because that man, like episode six and his kind of crazy kookiness so good oh my my gosh massively (laughs) i want to keep want to keep scoring stuff with him and you know i just love to work with marvel again because they've been incredible and it's been so creative and i feel like i've been really supported in whatever mad idea i had so yeah i couldn't ask for more keep making those mad ideas whether they're for marvel or anywhere else natalie thanks so much for being on this week in marvel thank you for having me (laughs) All right, 
Let's get into the rest of the show. We've got to get you guys a question of the week for next week because our guest next week is Patrick Stump, and he's talking about Spidey and his amazing friends, the new animated series that Patrick Stump, who is the singer and and songwriter for Fallout Boy, he did the theme song and the music for this brand new show. So that's really fun. And so our question of the week sort of revolves around that because Spidey and his amazing friends is going to be such a great show for kids and families. So cute. For anybody out there, what do you want to share with your kid or your friend's kids or with another kid? Or what were you excited to share with your kids if you already have kids? Marvel stuff, you know, what were you really excited about? Let us know. You can tweet your answers using hashtag ThisWeekInMarvel. Email them to twimpodcast at marvel.com or send a message to our Facebook page at facebook.com slash thisweekinmarvel. And please make sure to tell us if it is okay to read on the show. All right. So our question of the week last week was what was your favorite costume or anything else from Marvel Studios Loki? And again, spoiler warnings. People are talking about the end of the series. So if you haven't seen it, you've been warned. You know what's up. If this gets spoiled for you, it's your fault now. Yeah. First up is Storyteller at Storyteller0111 who posted it was Throg's tiny costume. I was so happy to see that guy. Looking forward to following his adventures in the MCU. Yes, I I love the tiny details. There's so much cool stuff if you really pay attention to what's happening in the background. Okay, next up we have Laura Cunningham at Laura0815, which said the costume department knocked it out of the park. Loki in his TVA getup, and let's not forget classic Loki and his fab comic book accurate look. Those two have got to be standouts. Oh, I love that classic Loki costume. It's so good. Heaven sent us Richard E. Grant. All right. Loki's hair flip at Cheryl K. Bell tweeted, fave costume was Sylvie. Loved the herringbone leather pattern on the upper torso in true Asgardian style. The practical movable pants. Most importantly, the practical flat boots and her little Loki crown with a broken horn on the left side. Yeah, I love that little detail of just, you know, somebody who's been through so much that her crown is broken, but she continues to wear it. Mm-hmm. And she uses it as a weapon, which I also think is such a cool detail. When she's fighting, she'll take it off and like bludgeon people with it, yeah. which is rad. <laughs> Lily at Uvana Lily tweets, Sophie's Sylvie costume made for breastfeeding slash pumping as an MCU fan and mama. That is so amazing. We talked about that last week, which mm-hmm. is awesome as heck. Yeah, I, it was really awesome hearing Christine talk about that as well. I just love that it was so like simple, just like, yeah, that's what you do. That's what you do to make everybody's life better. Yeah. I think we could all be a little bit more like Christine. All right. Next up, we have Alex at Alex Brooke underscore. Sorry, but it has to be President Loki's outfit. That was the best. Um, I did get a thrill of excitement when I first saw that in the trailer. Mm-hmm. It was like, <gasps> vote for Loki. Yes. Pretty good. Next up, Beth at B.H.J. Blunt said, President Loki was the cherry on top, in my opinion. I even got a pin badge with the vote Loki, and I wore it on my work uniform for the whole month. Oh, that's so nice. I love that. Uh, Devin Coulson at Devin Coulson tweeted, for me, it's a toss up between the President Loki costume and Richard E. Grant's classic Jack Kirby costume. Love it when comic accurate suits are put on screen in live action. Heck Hell yeah. yeah. Next up, Blanca at Off Blanca said, definitely the pink-haired Ramona flowers <laughs> like Loki, LOL. I love this. So they talk about this in Marvel Studios Assembled the Making of Loki, but that band of 
folks who are with Lokis are all Lokis. If you look at their costumes, and Christine, you know, had so many great different ideas behind what each one was, but there is one that has like bright red hair and a, like a jail yeah. kind of stripe going on. It's really delightful. It's tremendous. Like you could give us stories about all of those characters. It would be so good. Uh, Megan Twombly at Meg Twoms tweets, I'm genuinely obsessed with how Owen Wilson, I mean Mobius, is just in a suit. Fantastic. <laughs> Give me more time detective Owen Wilson right now, Marvel. I love it. Also, yeah. stash for life. Team mustache. Put it on him. Leave it on him. We got an email from Dylan DeSalt. Dylan says, for my favorite Loki costume, it'd have to be Loki's variant suit. It's just plain beautiful. But if you could say alligator Loki in his own costume, boy, it would have to be him. But also in the subject of Lokis, rest in peace, classic Loki. Mm. Dylan also sent another message, which I uh, will share with the team. Uh, thank you, Dylan. All right. We got a Facebook message from Chris Dyer. Chris says, good evening. I absolutely love your show and I'm looking for resources, comics, books, podcast shows, movies, etc., to introduce my kids to five and six years old to the Marvel world. If you have not covered this already, I'd love to hear your thoughts. If you have covered this, can you point me in the right direction to which episode? Thank you so much for what you do and keep it up. That's a great question. I mm -hmm. First and foremost, you should be going over to the Marvel HQ channel. You can go to marvelhq.com or youtube.com slash marvelhq. There's tons of kid appropriate programming over there. I've worked on a bunch of it, so enjoy it. There's some really fun stuff there to introduce your kids that are in short sort of bite-sized bits that you can enjoy. But also there's like some wonderful comics. Yeah, there's, we, we've done a lot of like all ages specific books. The um, mm -hmm. the Double Trouble series are really oh, good so for cute. kids. We did uh, Spider-Man and Venom Double Trouble and Thor and Loki Double Trouble. Mm -hmm. Those are really recent and they're terrific. There are a bunch of Power Pack limited series, which I really love. Thor and the Warriors 4 is my favorite of the bunch. That's really good. There was a whole line, two lines really, of comics that we created specifically for all ages slash younger readers in the mid 2000s called Marvel Age mm -hmm. and Marvel Adventures. And so you can find like digest size, smaller size graphic novels of a lot of those. They're also available on Marvel Unlimited. There's Avengers, Fantastic Four, Spider-Man. There's tons and tons of those stories available. X-Men First Class and really specifically Wolverine First Class was a great series that you can give to kids if you want to have them, you know, read about Wolverine. The Marvel action comics that are being produced right now, they're actually being published by IDW, but you can read them on Marvel Unlimited and you can get them at your local comic shop they're really good the captain marvel ones have a lot of flurkin action in them and they're really really fun also you know shout out to disney plus you can go over to that marvel tab and there's cartoons for decades of marvel let us know if if you go check those out and, and which ones you liked yeah so hopefully that's a great start for you all right, we got an email here from Mike London, which says, hello, I've got a question about back issues of digitized comics. I'm curious when and how certain back issues are chosen to be digitized and if there is a way that fans can suggest for a certain issue or trade to be digitized that aren't available. 
Are back issues trades chosen to be digitized based on popularity, randomness, completing a series already in progress, collections that collect certain issues, or based on a new show slash movie? For example, can fans expect more digitized backed issues of the 90s What If and Moon Knight series when their shows debut later this year? Question mark. Uh, <laughs> is there a good way for fans to suggest or request back issues or trades they'd eventually like to have digitized by Marvel? Love the show. Keep up the good work. Thanks. Mike. Mike, great question. I went to the source to get us an answer for this. I talked to Jim Nasidis, who is the publishing sales director, with your questions. So Jim gave a lot of info for us. He says the decisions regarding the backlist for both print and digital are sort of governed by a number of factors. They look at the characters or their series getting a spotlight in new comics or in TV or movies. And so they they think about that as they fill out the backlist, both digitally and in, in collections. They also look at stuff that hasn't been released previously and the best way to release that. So sometimes it's an epic collection, which are some of my favorite current versions. Epic collections are like 20 issues in a big volume uh, or an omnibus, which is a big hardcover collecting lots and lots of issues, that kind of stuff. Of course, popularity plays a huge part in what is uh, sold and and has been read in the past factors into what is like focused in on next. And they do take recommendations into account. So there's even an FAQ on marvel.com about this. And the FAQ reads, you could reach out to Marvel customer support at help.marvel.com and specify which titles you would like to see added to the collection. It does say, please note, we cannot guarantee when or if any request will be granted. However, we are constantly updating the site and there will be a variety of classic and new titles added every week to see upcoming releases. You can go to Marvel Unlimited. Um, so they are working to fill in those gaps. If you want you know, specific books specifically, 90s what if 90s moon Knight, go to help.marvel.com make that recommendation make those asks there i'll be honest i've already pushed them to add more 90s what if we'll see but resources are what they are time is what it is people are working real hard so hopefully we can get more of these things the more people who share their hopes and their requests the more that they'll see that there's a an audience for them so let them know help.marvel.com is a great place to go to start doing it there one more, I want to just shout out our buddy, Kevin Nevels, who sent us a note for last week. He let us know that he was listening to the show, and I will share this with the rest of the, the team once we finish recording. But he was listening to the show, and he heard his name and his question read while his kids were in the car with him, and it was really cute, and they sent us a really sweet video. So, Kevin, thank Aww. you for sharing the video and everything, and um, we appreciate you. Nice. That wraps it up. This episode of This Week in Marvel is produced by Alexis Williams, Zachary Goldberg, Isabel Robertson, Lorraine Sink, and Ryan Panagos. Our audio development manager is Brad Barton. And Jill DeBoff is our director of audio. And special thanks to Throgs Pogs. Wart your friends with warts, my friends, with Throgs Pogs. Bye. I'm Ryan. I'm Lorraine. This is Marvel. Your universe. <laughs>